Hello, this is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary and the host of the Lead On podcast, where each week we talk about practical issues of ministry leadership and how to do a better job of expanding God's kingdom by the leadership that we provide. Today I want to talk about an issue that uh, strikes at the core, really, of what it means to be a Christian leader, and that is I want to talk about doctrinal integrity in ministry leadership. Christian leaders uh, lead from a distinctly uh, doctrinal perspective, meaning that we have certain things that we believe that inform how we act and certainly inform how we lead. Let me underscore today that as a Christian leader, you must courageously hold to doctrinal convictions. Uh, what I mean is don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe. Uh, this means that you preach and teach your doctrinal convictions, that you learn how to communicate them clearly, uh, how to do that in a cogent and insightful way, and how to do that for people of uh, various ages and educational backgrounds. You're able to preach and teach what you really believe. But beyond that, holding to uh, doctrinal convictions means that you make ministry decisions based on those convictions. Uh, you make decisions, for example, about um, how your church is organized. You make decisions about the strategies that you will implement in church planting. You make decisions about how you'll structure a worship service and what you believe needs to be accomplished in a worship service. You make all these kinds of decisions and really many more than those based on uh, what you believe and what you believe the Bible teaches about those issues. A part of this is also making ministry decisions to structure staff and to allocate resources based on what you believe about money and what you believe about personnel and how they should be deployed in support of your mission. Another way that you stand up for what you believe is by counseling people personally and individually on, based on your doctrinal convictions. You'll have convictions, for example, about marriage, about morality, uh, about different issues related to personal interaction and how people treat one another. And as you sit down with married couples or sit down with individuals who are seeking spiritual direction, you draw on those doctrinal convictions to inform what you say to them, even though those conversations may be painful, uh, may be uh, sometimes very difficult, uh, you still have to bring those convictions to, to bear on those conversations. Now, Having the courage to stand up for what you believe, to preach and teach what you believe, to make ministry decisions based on what you believe, to counsel people based on what you believe, uh, this is a challenge in our generation and, frankly, becoming more and more of a challenge as we go along. In order to do this, you're going to have to reject false models of placid, peace-loving, convictionless Christian leaders that are sometimes uh, put before us in media today. How can you do that? How can you reject these false models and own a more uh, biblical and a more practical uh, and a more realistic model? Well, you can do that by first taking an honest look at biblical leaders. It's really hard to look at someone, for example, like Peter or Paul or in the Old Testament like David or Moses. It's hard to look at these leaders and see them as placid, peace-loving, convictionless people. They were anything but those, those, character, uh, those characteristics. These were people who stood strongly for what they believed, were willing to speak up and take risks and lead people to accomplish far more than they ever thought possible because of their conviction of what God was leading them to do. And then also take an honest look at the life of Jesus. 
Uh, Jesus is often pictured as sort of a soft guy with a, with a, a, you know, a, a little fuzziness to the photograph to just communicate how gentle and sweet or loving he must have been. Well, Jesus, uh, while he was always loving, was also a person who stood up for God's standards and stood up for God's righteousness and called people to repent and to turn from their evil, wicked ways of living and to commit themselves fully to becoming his followers and to taking on the implications and the ethical dimensions of what that meant. So it's hard to imagine that Jesus who flipped over tables in a temple or uh, confronted a rich young man about his misuse of wealth or who dealt with a woman that was in the practice of adulterous relationships and directly told her to come out of those. It's hard to imagine uh, that Jesus being placid or peace-loving or convictionless. Uh, Those stories illustrate who Jesus really was as a leader, and it's important to have a balanced view of him. So stand up for what you believe. Preach and teach what you believe. Use what you believe to make ministry decisions and to guide you in personal interaction with people. Uh, You'll do this better if you take an honest look at biblical leaders and an honest look at Jesus as a leader. And avoid the trap of thinking that Christian leaders are somehow softies, that we're placid, peace-loving, convictionless people. Now, in the context of doing this, it's important to also recognize that Not all doctrinal issues uh, are of equal importance, and not all doctrinal issues should receive equal weight in guiding us in preaching, teaching, decision-making, and interacting with others. And certainly there are some doctrines that we're going to stand for much more forcefully and in a much more definitive way, and others that we're able to uh, stand with or hold to in a different context or in a way that's more uh, accommodating to people who may differ with us. You may say, well, really, is there, is there really a difference between different doctrinal positions, and is there really a difference in the intensity with which we should hold them? Well, uh, yes, there is, and, and there's a lot of evidence that we do this really quite naturally. Uh, for example, let's take uh, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as an example and how schools like ours uh, use that document. You know, we require that Everyone at our school teach in accordance with and not contrary to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And yet there are certain aspects of that document that we investigate much more fully what a professor believes before they come on board with us. Most people don't even realize the Baptist Faith and Message has whole sections on things like social order, uh, cooperation, uh, the Christian role of, higher edu- uh, of education and higher education. Uh, these are doctrinal statements that are part of our theological core. And yet, no one of us really considers those equal to what the Baptist Faith and Message says, for example, about the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Scripture or, or the doctrine of salvation. Uh, Those are certainly doctrines that are even more at the core of what we believe than some other things that are even listed in our doctrinal statement. And this is often not only revealed in how schools use the document, but also how pastors are interviewed um, when they're being considered for a church leadership position. Uh, Most churches will interview a pastor or candidate quite closely about what they believe about, again, doctrine of God, salvation, scripture, uh, issues that are at the core of of the Christian faith. But many don't even ask any questions at all about what a pastor believes about some of these other issues, even though, again, they're outlined in the Baptist faith and message, our core doctrinal statement as Southern Baptists. Just those two illustrations, how seminaries use the document and how 
um, pastoral interview processes use the document, uh, just show us that practically and, and, uh, uh, and really as an outworking of how we use these kind of doctrinal statements, we recognize some aspects of them are, are weightier and have more, uh, more gravitas, if you will, about how we make decisions and about how we work together with each other. Another uh, illustration of this is the cooperation that takes place within denominations. For example, again, in my denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, there are people who have widely varying viewpoints on things like the atonement, and that's a pretty serious doctrine. Uh, widely varying viewpoints on things like church government and how churches are to be organized and how they're to be led. Uh, widely differing opinions on things like the end times and the return of Jesus and how that will all play out. But somehow, uh, we find a way to work together because we recognize that while some doctrines have very high levels of must have very high levels of commitment for us to work together. Other doctrines can be tolerated in a sense to have more of a plurality of understanding, and that's how denominations are even actually able to work together. And then another example of the differing distinctions between different doctrines is the example of the martyrs. You know, some people were, will, have been willing to die for our faith as Christians because there were some things that were so central to what they believed that they just simply couldn't compromise those things. And so uh, they were willing to die for them, but if you'd asked them about some lesser issues, they would have been willing to compromise or accommodate or somehow find a way to work together uh, to avoid the penalty of death for what they believed. So uh, let's summarize this first part. Christian leader, you must lead with doctrinal integrity. You have to preach and teach what you believe, make ministry decisions based on what you believe, and counsel people based on the convictions that you hold. You have to reject false models of placid, peace-loving Christian or convictionless Christian leaders and really come to understand that the biblical models of leaders and including the biblical model of Jesus really mandate that we be willing to stand up for certain things, uh, even to the point of it costing us dearly to do so. Now, not all doctrines are the same, and I've given you some illustrations about that. Some are more important than others, and some deserve uh, a greater level of commitment and accountability than others. So let's see if I can talk about that now in a little more detail. When theologians describe levels of uh, doctrinal importance for various positions, they often use some different phrases. For example, they'll say that there are first order, second order, and third order doctrines. Or they'll say there's primary uh, secondary and tertiary doctrines. Well, I've used some other language to try to communicate this same idea, uh, to try to speak maybe a little more plainly to people in the pew who might uh, not have that kind of theological training, but might understand the words this way. I believe that there are three levels of importance of doctrinal positions that correspond with those terms I've just already mentioned. I think there are what I call convictions, commitments, and preferences. Now, what's the difference between these three? Well, convictions might be called first-order doctrines or primary doctrines. Convictions are doctrines that you cannot compromise. Convictions are doctrines that define the fundamentals of the Christian faith. In other words, the convictions that we hold distinguish us as Christians from people who are not Christians. You can't compromise a convictional doctrine, a first order or a primary doctrine, and still be a Christian. So the examples of this might include the doctrine of God, for example, or the doctrine of salvation. You can't compromise on these issues and still be a Christian. For example, if you say, well, 
I believe that there are a lot of ways that people can be saved or that people can go to heaven. You're contradicting a core conviction of the Christian faith, and that is Jesus is the only way of salvation. That's a core conviction. We hold to that because it defines us as Christians. And if you disagree with that, uh, you're not disagreeing as a Christian. You're redefining what it means to be a Christian, and therefore, I think, admitting that you're really not a Christian. And so, the reality is some doctrines can't be compromised because they define who we are as Christians. A second level of doctrinal importance are what I call commitments. These are also called second order or secondary doctrines. Now, these are commitments that you've personally adopted and that you may hold to uh, quite strenuously or quite definitively, but they would not be quite to the level of a first order or a primary or what I call a convictional doctrinal position. A commitment is something that you hold to that defines the fellowship of your church and perhaps the fellowship of your denomination. Uh, there are some examples of this, like, uh, for example, baptism, mode of baptism. Another one might be church government uh, and how churches are, are, uh, are controlled or led. Uh, another commitment issue might be charismatic issues or understandings of spiritual gifts. On each of these things, I have come to uh, strong commitments about what I believe the Bible teaches on these issues. And those strong commitments about what I believe about baptism and church government and the use of spiritual gifts define for me the kind of church where I can be a member and the kind of denomination that I can cooperate for greater impact. That doesn't mean that people who disagree with me are not Christians. It just means that they disagree with me on these issues to such an extent that it's better for both of us if we find people who share our same commitments and try to advance our Christian convictions by those means. So, for example, uh, I don't think that uh, people that uh, baptize by any means other than immersion of a believer are doing it appropriately. I don't think that any form of church government which denies congregational authority as the final uh, authority by which the church must be accountable is appropriate. I personally think that the practice of uh, some spiritual gifts in the ways that they're, prom they're, they're, they're done in, a, in our culture today are actually divisive in worship, not contributing to healthy worship, so I don't see them as being part of what we practice in a, in a regular worship experience. However, uh, because I have those commitments does not mean that people who differ with me on these, I call them non-Christians. They may not share my local church membership, they may not share my denominational affiliation, but they still hold to the core convictions. They still hold to the primary, our, uh, our first-order doctrines of the faith. And because they hold to those, I'll acknowledge that they're Christian while at the same time not being able to be a member of a church with them or even part of a denomination with them because I'm trying to advance the commitments that I understand as doctrinal positions that I must hold to, and I want to work with people who share those with me. Now, a third level of doctrinal importance sometimes called third order or tertiary, I like to call preferences that you enjoy. Now, preferences define the fellowship of your church, but more specifically, they often define the organizational unit of your church, like the worship service or the small group or something like that where you attend. Uh, what are some examples of preferences that we enjoy? Well, for example, worship style is one of those. 
Uh, some people like a more formal style, some a more informal style, uh, some like a printed order of worship, some like a much more spontaneous or something that at least appears to be more spontaneous. Uh, some people like to go to church where they turn the lights out during the singing, and some people like to have the lights on. Uh, some people like to stand up while they sing, and others like to sit down. Uh, some people, uh, another, another uh, preference is preaching style. Uh, some people prefer a, a, a style of preaching that has uh, a particular format or a particular method attached to it. Others prefer the Bible to be preached clearly, but in different styles or different ways. And there's certainly some variety that can be found there in preferences that you enjoy. Uh, some people uh, have a target style of ministry or a target kind of ministry that they're trying to accomplish. Some churches, for example, say, well, we're a discipleship church, or we're an outreach church, or we're a fellowship church, we're a community church, we're designed to uh, send people as many as possible on mission outside our area, or as many as people as possible on mission just to our community. There's different styles of ministry and different focuses that uh, emerge, and those are preferences that you can pick and choose from. And uh, very large churches oftentimes uh, have these preferences in different worship services, where one worship service will be formal or classical or traditional, and another firm service will be contemporary or innovative or uh, more of a modern way of doing worship. And that might even take place in the church that has similar convictions and even similar commitments, but the church itself is large enough that they're able to accommodate uh, the preferences of people uh, across a spectrum of different, uh, different uh, modes of doing these things. So Christian leaders must lead courageously, but we must do so by learning to distinguish between different levels of doctrinal uh, importance of certain positions that we might hold. Uh, first order, primary doctrines, what I call convictions, are things you simply cannot compromise because if you compromise those things, you're no longer uh, really identifying with the Christian faith. And second order or secondary doctrines, what I call commitments that you've personally adopted, these commitments are things you hold to and you hold to them dearly and you hold to them with passion and uh, with some ardency and, and you want to promote what you believe, but you recognize that people can differ with you and still be Christian. Uh, these things, as I said, like motive baptism or church government or charismatic practices, yes, those things may be different, and we may have strong commitments to those things in terms of a position we've come to, but we recognize that Christians can actually differ on these issues. And then the preferences we enjoy or the third-order doctrines or those uh, tertiary doctrines, these define uh, the fellowship that we share with other believers and oftentimes define the organizational units of Christian work that we engage in. Well, what happens... When you're faced with doctrinal dissension or doctrinal difficulty or even doctrinal conflict uh, about these matters. Well, let me talk with you about that by again walking through uh, sort of a threefold way of looking at how you handle doctrinal conflict or dissension or difficulty that may arise in your ministry setting. First of all, let's talk about what you do when the conflict is over a conviction, a primary doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, there are, many, there, there are many examples of this, but two of the most prominent in the New Testament are Acts chapter 15, where the churches at Antioch and Jerusalem met together to determine the doctrine of salvation, specifically whether circumcision, a man-made work, had any part in a person becoming a Christian. And then Galatians chapter 2 
Um, again, another significant conflict between Peter and Paul uh, and some other church leaders as well over the nature of fellowship and inclusion in the gospel and whether or not uh, people could share table fellowship with others as true Christians or whether they were denying their true Christianity by denying relationship with them. From these two stories, and I would encourage you to read them in more detail, they're quite lengthy and I won't read them today on the podcast, but go back and reflect and read through those stories as you think about these ideas. What do you do when you have doctrinal conflict over a conviction or a primary or first order doctrine? Well, you have two options. The first is confront the disagreement and someone decides to change. In both Acts 15 and Galatians chapter 2, someone confronted the error that they believed was being taught. And in both cases, the person in error or the group in error uh, changed their mind and everyone was able to then unify and continue working together, rallied around this core doctrinal position. Particularly in Acts 15, the church decided that salvation was by grace through faith alone and that no work, including circumcision, contributed to a person's salvation. And once that was decided, the churches at Antioch and Jerusalem were able to go forward working together. So when a conflict like this happens, the first option is to confront and someone change their mind. The second option is to confront and separate from one another. Now, when this happens, someone confronts the error, the person in error refuses to admit their position is an error, and the true Christians have to separate and carry on with the work because, in this case, denying a convictional doctrine, a first-order doctrine, a primary doctrine, is not just denying fellowship or denying a commitment to a certain style of ministry or a certain position that informs ministry, if you deny one of these doctrines, you are denying the Christian faith. And the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that when this happens, true Christians have to separate and continue to do the work apart from those who refuse to change their mind. So when a doctrinal conflict happens over a convictional issue, the only two options are confront, repent, and go forward together, or confront and separate and go forward apart from one another. But then secondly, another question then is what happens when the conflict is not over a convictional issue, but what it's, when it's over a commitment issue or a secondary doctrine or a second-order doctrine? Well, again, two responses. First, the Bible advocates that you hold to your position, but that you preserve your fellowship with the other believers. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Thessalonians were confused about issues related to work ethic, about uh, people who were idle and expecting the church to care for them, uh, about confusion related to the second coming of the Lord and how that was informing this misguided uh, decision about work and uh, charity. And Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. And at the end of that passage, he concludes by saying this, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with them so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In other words, you may not be able to stay in close relationship with a person who disagrees with you about a commitment issue or a secondary issue. You may have to separate from them in a sense, but don't separate from them as a brother. 
warn them as a brother, stay in relationship with them, and continue in some way to associate uh, or, or to have a relationship with them. In other words, the tension here is don't associate, but don't disregard or dismiss or in any way damage. Hold to your position, but try to preserve the fellowship you have with other believers. And then the second option is to hold on to your brother and really preserve the fellowship of your church. In other words, don't even let the person get away. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. And then the last verse, Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. So Paul is saying here, hold on to your brother. Hold on to the person. If you have to separate from them, still hold on to a relationship with them. And if at all possible, hold on to them so that you can remain even in the same church and find a way to work together. But then third, what about when the conflict is over a preference or a third order doctrine? Well, that's pretty clear in the Bible, and that is we're supposed to not divide over these issues over personalities and methods or opinions or anything that uh, would undermine the unity that we're supposed to have. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse, uh, verse 10, Paul said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that there be no divisions among you. And then he goes on to say, For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there's a rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this, one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. And then he asks, is Christ divided? In other words, Paul is saying, what's all this personality cult worship that's going on? And man, is that ever true today, where we say, well, I follow this writer, or this speaker, or this blog guy, or this guy on his uh, podcast. I follow just that person, and whatever they say is what I do. Paul said, hey, don't do that. Don't divide up over personality-driven conflicts. And then he goes on to say a good model of how to deal with some of these issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's writing about the issue of relationships between men and women, particularly between unmarried men and unmarried women, and how that's all supposed to shape out. And I like the way he starts the section in chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, verse 25. He says, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is faithful. In other words, he says, you know, the, the Lord didn't really give a command on this, but but I have a perspective on I'd like to offer. And he offers that perspective in several verses. And then he gets down to the end and says, and I think I also have the Spirit of God on this. And I really like the, the measured way that Paul approaches, even in Scripture, uh, what he's writing to us. He said, you know, the Lord didn't really address this, and I, I think I have the Spirit's leadership, and here's the best counsel I can give you, but I'm giving it to you in that context. So when it comes to third order or tertiary or what I call preferences of doctrinal position, we have to be really careful that we don't get caught up in following a person or a method or even thinking too highly of our own opinion about what we think the Lord has said, but instead hold these positions uh, gently and do all we can to preserve relationships with other brothers and sisters who would disagree with us about that level of issue. Well, as we come to the end, let me make a few observations. Uh, as I've matured over the years as a Christian, my list of convictions has gotten shorter, but my commitment to them has gotten deeper. The fundamental challenge for me, and really for most leaders, is identifying convictions and holding them without compromise, while at the same time demonstrating patience and grace with other believers who have differing commitments and preferences.
Now think about that. The challenge we face is holding to our convictions without compromise, but making a distinction with these other doctrines so that we can demonstrate patience and grace with other believers as they hold positions different than ours. Now the tragic mistake that often happens, which creates the most explosive conflicts among Christians, is when issues are given more weight than they deserve. For example, when a commitment is treated like a conviction or a preference is treated like a commitment or a conviction. It's so sad when people hold to convictions about or, or to positions about worship styles at the same level they hold a conviction about the doctrine of salvation. Listen, if you're doing that, you need to learn how to make some good distinctions between the relative importance of doctrinal positions and engage your response to other believers accordingly. Now, as I consider these issues, I often ask myself two questions that help me sort this out. First question, am I willing to die for this conviction? Am I willing to die for my position? If I am then it truly is a conviction. If I'm not, then it is either a commitment or a preference. I have a friend who was a pastor in Romania in the 1980s. He was arrested multiple times, interrogated at gunpoint. He was asked on repeated occasions, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Yes. Do you believe the Bible is God's word and you're going to live your life by it instead of in allegiance to the Communist Party? Yes. These were convictions that he was willing to die for and, in fact, on many occasions had either a gun held to his head or was, or was threatened or tortured in other ways because of those positions. If you'd ask my friend, do you believe we should sing hymns or choruses? <laughs> Do you believe we, we should uh, uh, wear suits or sports shirts to church? He'd have laughed at you that you would even ask such a question about his convictions and, and, and the fact that he would confuse those with something he was really worth willing to die for. So my first question, am I willing to die for this? My second question is, will this person that I'm in conflict with be in heaven with me? If the answer is no then that means they don't share the core convictions of the Christian faith, and I need to be very careful how I relate to them because I have to stand against them on one hand, but on the other hand, do that winsomely that I might present the gospel to them in the best way possible. But it is permissible for me to oppose them, to stand against them, and to, in fact, even separate from them if we don't share the same core convictions. But if they are going to heaven with me, if we do share those core convictions, then while I may still have different commitments and preferences than they do, it changes the way I relate to them so that I no longer am able to relate to them as someone who doesn't know God or know God through Jesus Christ, but now is a fellow Christian with me. And while I may disagree on the commitments or preferences issues, I have to treat them with respect and deference and love and find a way to somehow encourage them to continue on with the work of God as best they understand it. Well, doctrinal convictions, it's part of being a Christian leader. We stand to preach and teach what we believe. We make ministry decisions and do personal counseling out of the convictions that we hold and out of the commitments and preferences that we've come to.
We have to learn to distinguish between these three levels or three orders of doctrinal importance, however, recognizing that we relate to conflict on these issues in different ways, and we avoid the really destructive response of holding to a commitment or a preference in the same way we'd hold to a conviction and the difficulty that brings in the unnecessary conflict that it introduces into the Christian community. But we also have to ask ourselves that important question, what am I willing to die for? And then stand on those convictions, immovable. But on other issues, still holding to them, yes, but finding a way to love our brothers and sisters and facilitate the work that we try to do together and with in support of one another. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast today. It's a challenging topic, uh, one we need to give a lot of thought to. I encourage you to do so. And in the meantime, uh, press on, keep doing the work God's called you to do, and uh, in our core responsibilities, lead on.